Good morning. All right, our scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 89, beginning in verse 35. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him, and he has become an object of scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him to stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We continue in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, and 39 and 40. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be looking these four Sundays in Advent at a genealogy. Can you believe it? Um, there's actually a reason that the genealogies are in the Bible. Those of you, uh, when you're reading through the Bible in a year, if you're on one of those plans, don't see this as a makeup day when you get to genealogies. <laughs> Try to acquaint yourself with the names here, and the more you read the Bible, the more you will begin to recognize these people, and these will become like computer links where you tap a name in your mind, and an entire story and period in redemptive history opens up. Here we have one of the two genealogies that were given in the Gospels of our Lord Jesus. And if you're confused by the differences between this one and Luke, uh, I'll, I'll make 
Ace Sarich miserable by saying, Ace sent me a couple days ago a, a great link uh, to uh, a, a wonderful article and a brief article, very comprehensible with diagrams, that shows one possible explanation for the two different uh, uh, genealogies, and it's as good as any of the, the explanations that I've seen. So, Ace, if you'll make that available to us, give it a couple days and then you can contact us at the church or we'll put it on the website. Don't everybody contact Ace. <laughs> so, we're just going to be looking at the first verse, but I am going to read the entire genealogy this one time, and then future Sundays, I'll just read the verses appropriate. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abram to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. I love this genealogy, and I love it because it is filled with the stories of heroes and losers, of virgins and prostitutes. If, if you know the backstory of just five or six of these people, you will realize that anyone looking at this before the birth of Christ would say, what? possible good could ever come from that bunch? And the answer is found in verse 16, of whom was born Jesus, who is Christ. And so just in this genealogy, we realize that God works through people just like you and me in order to bring redemption into this world. 
The mistake we too often make is that we're the nice people and the people out there are the bad ones and church is the safe place where kind of those who have it together come. And of course, if we ever communicate that, nobody who needs to know the Lord is ever going to come near us. Why was Jesus always in trouble with the religious leaders of his day? For one reason alone. They expected him to hang out with them. And instead, he hung out with the people that they considered the outcasts. Why is your master, why is your teacher eating with those kinds of people? Well, it's because we're all those kinds of people. It's just some of us realize it and some of us don't. And so this genealogy is filled with people just like us, but more so. <laughs> more so because they lived at a period in history when lives were lived more on the edge, when the gospel hadn't done its cultural work for millennia to cause uh, the kinds of laws and concepts of justice and mercy that we have now. They lived out on the edge. Moses waged war just the same way that the Taliban waged war. He did all the same stuff because that's how ancient people waged war. Apart from that 16th verse, of whom is the Christ, of whom is Jesus, apart from that, Abraham is just a lusty Bedouin sheik, and David, a warrior poet who ended badly. And yet, Paul tells us in Romans 4, that Abraham is the father not only of the Jewish people and through Ishmael of the Arabs, but he's the father of all of those of us who have faith. He is the example to us of what faith looks like. And David is called in the book of Acts the man after God's own heart. And yet these were men to whom God made tremendous promises and who lived so many years waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, wondering if God would ever fulfill them, sometimes I'm sure stumbling and, and doubting. And I want us just to think about them for a few minutes today. First of all, think about Father Abraham. I think of him as this magisterial figure, perhaps a younger man when God called him from the rubble of Babel. Remember that Genesis chapter 11, we have man try to build his own great city out on the plain of Shinar. That's where uh, Babylon was. That's where Iraq is today. And he, they wanted to build it all the way up into the heavens, skyscrapers, everything. And God says, let's go down and see what they're doing. They think they're all the way to heaven. God's kind of like, I can't see it from here. Let's go down and try to get it. But God in his mercy confuses their languages. They cannot communicate. They're scattered over the earth. And it is out of the rubble of man's city that God calls Abram, still Abram, and says, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the place that I will show you. And I will give you everything that the builders of Babel sought for themselves. I will give it to you in gift if you will follow me. I will make your name great. I will give you descendants. I will give you land. And through you, all of the families of the earth will be named. But Abram was 
actually about a half year older than I am. He was 75 when God called him. I can't imagine if God said, okay, time to leave your nice little place in Eastport. And by the way, I don't want you going back home to Knoxville. I'm sending you to the Sahara Desert. And no details at present, just start traveling. Get rid of everything and go. And Abram went. Ur of the Chaldeans was not some backwater. Archaeologists tell us that this was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was right on the Persian Gulf. Scholars of Ur tell us that they did surgery. They had invented their own form of calculus. They were extraordinarily sophisticated in arts and architecture and all of the rest. This was high culture. This was where Abram lived. And God said, I want you to leave it, and I want you to take off to the backside of nowhere and just keep going, and I will lead you. And so he left. And you know the story as well as I. He goes, and year after year after year, he's waiting for God to give him the child. He's getting older. Sarai is getting older. And yet there's no child. And they divide the land with Lot and go through one thing after another. He knows war. He knows all kinds of difficulties. He twice betrays his wife by saying, say you're my sister and let, let this king have you just to save me. I mean, he shows himself to be fairly despicable in his dealings with his family. And yet he steadfastly keeps following the Lord. Now imagine for a moment how humiliating this was for him. His name, Abram, it hadn't yet been changed to Abraham. His, his name, Abram, meant father of a great nation. And he has no children. So he is living. He knows that all the servants and hangers-on think it's so funny, his name, and that he said, God has promised me that he's going to give us an heir. And, and this goes on year after year, decade after decade. And now at last, Oenius, he's tried to help God out. He says, won't you let Eleazar of Damascus be my heir? God says, no. And then Sarah comes to him and says, look, I'm too old to have a child. Here's Hagar, my Egyptian slave. Take her. We'll have a child by her. We'll make the child our own. And so Abram takes, and you know that story. So moving, the mistreatment of Hagar. But God says, no, I will bless this son of yours, this Ishmael. And of course, the Arab people came from Ishmael. And he said, I'll make of him a mighty nation, and I'll bless him, but he's not the child of promise. And finally, when Abram is 99 years of age, God comes to him again, Abram. Just can't imagine the weariness. Yes, Lord. And I'm sure he had times of thinking, you know, I was perfectly happy at home in Ur of the Chaldeans. <laughs> I had a good life. Um, what am I doing here? Have I gone mad? And God said to him at 99, we're almost there. And I want you to gather all your people together because we're going to change your name. And I'm sure Abram thought, well, that's a blessing. I hope it's Bob or Jim or something, you know, something other. And he says, we're going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, which means not just father of a great family, but father of a 
multitude of nations and peoples. And he's like, is there no end to my humiliation? And then God says, and this is going to be the culmination of the big party, name-changing party. I want you and all of your men to be circumcised before the days of anesthesia, brothers. So here's poor Abram, 99 years of age. He's been following the Lord almost 25 years. He hasn't yet received this child of promise. Here's his old wife, Sarai, and now changed to Sarah, princess. And God is saying, I want you to change your name to something even more humiliating. And I want, to cel- want you to celebrate it by hurting yourself and all your people, you know? And Abram obeyed. He obeyed God. And a year later, a year later, Isaac was born, which means laughter. Because at last, God had kept the promise and given us in Abram's story this incredible picture. And then when he'd come to love that lad and watch him grow, and the the boy was old enough to, to hike three days with his dad and put a load of wood on his back and climb a mountain, the Lord came to him again, Abram, Abraham, yes, Lord, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the place that I will show you, and there, offer him up to me. And so Abraham went. And three-day journey. Got to the mountain. And, uh, and you know, offered up his son. The great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a very beautiful little work called Fear and Trembling, in which he tried to enter into what was going on in Abraham's mind, those three days of travel. And he sets all these different scenarios, but at the end he says, you know, the Bible has kept this beautiful, chaste silence around his agony. And and Kierkegaard's conclusion is that the person of faith doesn't really know whether they're just imagining God's voice or whether it's really God or whether they've gone mad, but that true faith is a leap into the dark. I, much as I love Kierkegaard, I totally disagree with him. And the reason is this. It doesn't come through in our translations. There is a word in Hebrew that is only used twice in the entire Old Testament. It's really only used twice in the Hebrew language in all of their literature, except when people are commenting on these two occasions because it's, it's impossible to know exactly how to translate it. When God first called Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, God said in this increasing intensity, leave your land, that's hard. Leave your people, that's harder. Leave your father's home, that's heartbreaking. And lech lecha, that's the word, lech lecha to the place that I will show you. And lech lecha would have totally puzzled Abram because it could mean go with yourself, like be sure you go, (laughs) go by yourself, 
No, I'm supposed to take my family, go to yourself, go to my future, go from yourself, leave my past. What does it mean? But he knew it meant go, so he went. But he carried that. And at last, 25 years later, saw God fulfill the promise. But that word, lech lecha, must have haunted him. What does it mean? One, ten chapters later in Genesis chapter 22, God calls him to take Isaac. God says, take your son. Oh, that's hard. Take your only son. Oh, that's harder. Take your son whom you love. Now your heart is breaking. And lech lecha to the place that I will show you and offer him to me. And as awful as that would have been to Abram, he knew the voice was God because God had called him with those same words at the beginning of his journey of faith. And God had been faithful, though not on Abram's timetable. And so he climbed that mountain and when his son said, Father, here's the wood, there's the fire, where's the lamb? He said, God himself will provide the lamb. And on the mountain, God provided a ram caught in the thicket, but that wasn't the real lamb that he provided. The gospel opens, the New Testament opens with the words, Jesus Christ, son of Abraham. And God gave his lamb through the seed promised that through you all the nations will be blessed. And I will bless them or curse them depending on how they respond to your seed. And Paul says, he didn't say seeds. He wasn't talking about a multitude. He said your seed, which is Jesus. And I wish the story ended there. It doesn't, and I've got to be brief. But after he received his son back, once Sarah died, Abraham just had a whole bunch of women and a whole bunch of kids, and he seemed to be had some kind of renewal in his hundreds, and, and he was sending them away. He'd have another child by another woman and give them a little gift and send them away, send them away, send them away in order to preserve his son's inheritance. This is our hero of the faith. He's like you and me, only more so. There he is. Because these are the kinds of people God uses. Why? Because these are the only kinds of people there are to work with, brothers and sisters. David, quickly, you know the story. Not an old man now, a young man. Saul is still alive, but God has rejected Saul. And so he tells the prophet Samuel, go to the house of Jesse, and I'm going to have you anoint one of his sons. And so he goes to Jesse's home, and he said, God is going to make one of your sons the king. Bring your sons before him, and he has parade before him all these big strapping military guys who are so good looking, and each one as he goes by, Samuel thinks, this is the one, and the Lord says, nope, not him. Oh, surely this one, no. Finally, all of them have gone by, and he says, do you have any other sons? He says, well, I mean, I've got the kid, but he's out with the sheep. He's calling, and David comes in, and we read that he was ruddy. <laughs> He'd been out in the sun. And God says, this is the one, anoint him. And God anoints him. And you know the battles that he fought, the way that he faithfully sought to serve King Saul. But King Saul knew that Samuel had anointed him rather than Saul's wonderful son, Jonathan, who would have been a great king. 
if it weren't for his father's sins. And then, as they come back from battle, the women, the young women, finally cooked David's goose for good because they'd written a song and they greeted all the troops and the king coming back by singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And that was it for Saul. I, just the king, thousands, but this guy whom Samuel... So he does everything he can to kill him. He goes after him. You know the story. Finally, years later, when Saul and Jonathan had fallen in battle with the Philistines, God calls David back. David becomes king. And David sets all of the instructions for building the tabernacle. His hands are bloody, so his son will build it. And he waits. And what happens as he fights God's battles, as the, the nation flourishes? One day, when spring comes and kings are going out to war, David decides, you know what, I've spent my whole life fighting. Joab, take the young men, go fight. I'm staying home. And so he's walking around up on his roof, looking out at this great capital city that he has built, probably smoking a Cuban and drinking a single malt scotch and <laughs> just thinking, I did it my way. <laughs> and he sees a, a beautiful young woman bathing. And he sends for one of his servants and says, who is she? And the servant says, let me tell you, she is the wife of Uriah, one of your bodyguard, one of your most faithful warriors who's helped with Joab fighting the Lord's battles. And her father is Eliab, who is also part of your mighty men bodyguard who have protected you in battle. And her grandfather is Ahithophel, who is your advisor, the wisest man in the kingdom, the one who tells you what you should do. So you, your majesty, you know, We'll send word to her to put up a screen from now on when she behaves, but you don't, you don't want anything to do with this. And David says, bring her to me, and gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover it over and brings Uriah back and gets him drunk, and he's too honorable to go sleep with his wife while the Lord's troops are out at battle. So David sends him back to battle with his death warrant in his hand, knowing that he's too honorable to read it. And he tells Joab, put him right up against the wall in the thick of the fight where the archers are shooting down and then fall back from him so that he'll be killed. And he's killed. And the thing displeases the Lord. That's putting it mildly. And Nathan the prophet goes to him, and you know, we don't have time, but he tells him a parable about a, a rich guy who had lots of sheep, but had a guest come and so decided to steal his neighbor's only little lamb and kill it and offer it. And David said, such a man deserves to die. You know, I'll, I'll deal with him. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. And David says, I've sinned against the Lord, wrote Psalm 51, one of the most moving, beautiful. If your heart is racked with guilt for sin, go pray Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after he'd sinned with Bathsheba. Nathan had gone and challenged him. And that child died. But do you know who the second child was? Solomon. Things would never be right again in David's family. One son would 
rape his, would rape his sister and then her brother would kill him by different mothers. And then that son, who was David's favorite son, would later run David out of Jerusalem and try to kill his father. And when at last all of his enemies were in the grave and Joab, his faithful cousin, had led his troops faithfully, David ends his days as a depraved old man telling Jonathan, I want you to kill Joab and I want you to kill this one and kill this one. Don't let them die in peace. And he gives him his hit list of people he wants to die. And at last he's so old that to keep him warm they have to bring in a woman from Shunammah and uh, have her be a living hot water bottle just to keep him from shaking. But they say the king knew or not, he was gone. David, the man after God's own heart, how can such a man be revered by the church of whom came Jesus, who was the Christ? If you are here this morning disappointed with God and feeling as though your life is such a mess that God can never make anything of it, or having seen him work, having reveled in his grace flowing through you and doing his work, and then having fallen and turned aside, brothers and sisters, lift up your heads. This season is all about the one who came, is coming again, but who now wants to come to each of us and live within us. And he will give himself to us in the new covenant by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit not as David experienced him, but is now the spirit of the risen, conquering Christ who has defeated the powers of death and sin and all that would come against us. And so to us in this season, we hear Phillips Brooks whisper again how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear him coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Would you stand? Father, thank you that it is through such agonizingly broken people that you have brought redemption to us. And thank you that because Christ has come and has redeemed us and has won this great victory, that we can live with a new confidence that we, we don't have to continue to fail and fall the way that the great old Testament figures too often did, but instead we can walk in the power of your spirit, in the power of the risen, conquering Christ, and when we fail, thank you for these pictures that show us and remind us that your grace is always greater than all our sin, that your purposes for us will not be thwarted, and that you at last to have carried us in this present age will carry us home and we will hear you say, well done, well done. In Jesus' name, amen.